Untold Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange discs had been found and inspected sometime last week. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And welcome to our uh, two-hour special as we look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. The preeminent Roswell investigator Don Schmidt is standing by, Victor Vigiani in studio, and we'll get rolling on this in just a moment for the full two hours. But first, just a couple of programming notes as I uh, work this frog out of my mouth, uh, out of my throat. The uh, the YouTube uh, stream is uh, is not live this week. Uh, however, we will get back to uh, that next week. The regular format will resume next week. What's in the box, our weekly remote viewing experiment, and, and so forth. So sit back and enjoy for the next two hours as we journey back 70 years as we look at the Roswell UFO incident. First of all, joining me in studio, my good friend, the executive director of the Zeland Communications and Zeland News Network, Victor Vigiani. How are you, my friend? Just fine, and it's great to be with you and looking forward to our chat with Dawn. First, before we get going with that, mm-hmm. uh, kudos to you for your yeah. exemplary work at the Alien Cosmic Expo mm-hmm. uh, this past uh, June. Thanks to your hard work and, and uh, others at the uh, the expo, you, you actually seem to break through and get some decent, finally some decent mainstream a newspaper reportage mm-hmm. on this on this issue. Yeah, Congratulations! We, thank you very much. We certainly did. We uh, got the Toronto Star engaged. Uh, the Ben Rayner, uh, a good friend of mine and a senior uh, reporter uh, and music and entertainment critic at the Star, Toronto Star, uh, did a fantastic job uh, on reporting uh, about unacknowledged about the film that uh, Stephen Greer produced, and also uh, the Toronto Sun. Uh, which has been following our work a lot in the past three or four years. And the fine reporter, Jenny, Jenny Young, did a great piece on the expo. So. And you, you were the central part of that. That's article. right. Yes. I, they, uh, they came over and uh, did some photographing of me and, uh, around my computer and all of that. And Jenny, uh, you know, spun a really great story around, uh, the work that I've done in the past to, to promote the expo and, uh, the expo itself, uh, in it, well, in advance of it, thank goodness. So, well, you have been laying the groundwork for you know some decent articles mm-hmm. on the UFO uh, arena, if you will, for well, long before I, I've known you, mm-hmm. and now it's finally starting to pay some dividends. Yeah, getting through to uh, mainstream media and having them recognize what's going on here in Canada has been a goal of mine for many, many years, and I think that the glass ceiling that exists both here in the United States, uh, more so in, in the states. Um, we, we need to break through that glass ceiling in terms of journalism to get journalists to really develop the necessary curiosity about what this issue is all about and give them an opportunity to really investigate 
the whole gamut of, uh, of what we're talking about with respect to the UFO ET issue. Well, that is in large measure because of your credibility. So, again, congratulations. Well, thank Victor. you very much. Let's get Don Schmidt in here. Don R. Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. And prior to that, he was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek and the art director for the International UFO Reporter. Uh, the website is roswellinvestigator.com. And uh, his latest book is called Cover Up at Roswell. Donald Schmidt, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Oh, so good to be back with you, Richard, and Victor as well. So I'm amongst uh, the best of friends. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. Oh, wow. Hard to believe. Seventy years, uh, Don. Seventy years. And, and, uh, neither, and none of us are that old, I hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 nowhere near that. But at this point, just kind of an overarching general question. Is anything new uh, in the investigation of Roswell and the UFO incident since we last talked, I guess since uh, the children of Roswell came out? Well, certainly we're, as I would use the uh, analogy, we're on the one-yard line with about 30 seconds left in the game, so to speak, and that the World War II generation is just about all gone. And that's been really the, the saddest aspect in all this. Uh, you know, even 30 years ago, when we were first discussing conducting our own independent investigation of Roswell, and even back then, everybody was telling us, all our colleagues, well, you can't investigate something that's 40 years old. Well, we, we pretty much proved that, uh, that wrong, that incorrect. But now, you know, in facing the reality, the, the starkness of the fact that every time I go down to New Mexico, as I always say, it's a little more lonely because everybody's gone. And the fact that we're starting to also lose the children, that now the sons and the daughters are also passing away, such as in the case of uh, Dr. Slash Colonel uh, Jesse Marcel, Jr., yes, whose father was the head of intelligence of the 509 bomb group stationed at Roswell in 1947 and was one of the uh, you know premier witnesses to the entire affair and, and pretty much set the spade work. 30 years later when he broke his oath of, of, of secrecy and, you know, stated very, you know, very frankly that I handle pieces that were not made on this earth. And, and so we've had to adapt, we've had to adjust, and we realized, I mean, true, we're dealing more and more with the families, we're getting more and more deathbed testimonies where people are finally, you know, confiding at the very end and telling their loved ones that, yes, I was part of this recovery operation, it was not from this planet, it was something extraordinary, it was something manufactured elsewhere, and the little people, the little men, they, they all refer to, you know, the, the, uh, the, the non-human bodies which were recovered. But what we're also doing is we're, we're, we're really going to focus more and more on the Ramey memo, which is that, that uh, telex message that Brigadier General Roger Ramey is holding in one of the infamous weather balloon photographs. Right. This is where they where they they sort of forced Jesse Marcel to pose with the remnants of what looked like a weather balloon, which was official explanation number one uh, uh, for uh, the incident. And I guess that certainly left a bad taste in, in Marcel's oh, mouth for many years. But in that same photograph, as you say, Ramey is is holding up a telex, and and uh, that has been analyzed. Uh, so that we can actually read what was on that telex. Exactly. And it's exciting because it, it clearly is a smoking gun. 
uh, you, you mentioned the balloon was the first explanation, but uh, actually it was the second. Right, because the so first one forget, right. the first, that, that it was an actual flying disc. And five hours later, a uh, balloon is substituted with a radar reflector kite, and as you mentioned, uh, General Ramey is holding that teletype. He's actually holding that piece of paper in four pictures, and in three of them, it's the back blank side of the paper, of the teletype, and it's in only that one, as though he caught himself and then flipped the paper. Ah. But the fact that there's a full paragraph of type, and even back in 1990, when we first uh, learned that the original negatives still existed, and that it was a, a reporter back in 1947 by the name of James B. Johnson, who worked at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, who took those very pictures, which is the reason they were preserved. And they were kept at the uh, Bentman Library Collection, University Collection down in Denton, Texas. And we were able to, you know, get reproductions from the original negatives. And we realized, my God, you know, with a little computer enhancement, we, may, we might be able to read this. And in, in 1990, we had Dr. Richard Haynes, who, uh, you know, with his work at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory and with NASA, and he was already doing computer enhancement, we felt, you know, well, let's, let's throw it to Dr. Haynes, see what he can do with it. And he was able to pull out a few letters here and there, and one word did jump out, and that was the word balloon. So we walked away convinced it was a press release on the weather balloon explanation. Right. Right. That's simple. And so there it languished. It sat there in limbo for the next, uh, you know, 10 years. And then we realized that, well, you know, now we have, we have programs. We have actual software that we should go back and let's see if we can read the rest of it. Well, that's when, and then as you, you both know, it, we turned the corner. And especially as far as with the professional, the expertise of Dr. David Rudiak and Dr. Donald Burleson, we now, they're able to read about 75% of that teletype that is visible in that one photograph. And where it makes reference specifically to disk, on two occasions it talks about uh, multiple locations, multiple sites, in reference to the crash, but I think, and clearly the smoking gun, the line, the victims of the wreck you forwarded to blank blank at Fort Worth, Texas. There you go. That is the smoking and gun. Victims of the wreck. So obviously, what victims in association with a weather balloon, radar reflector kite? So it establishes the fact that there were bodies recovered at Roswell. It doesn't state specifically they were extraterrestrial, no, but it throws the onus right back on the government. What bodies, what victims? Indeed. Don R. Schmidt is uh, with us, and his latest book is Cover Up at Roswell, uh, and uh, previously, of course, the UFO crash at Roswell, the truth about the UFO crash at Roswell, witness to Roswell, uh, and last year, of course, the children of Roswell, and his latest, once again, Cover up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is with us in studio. Take it away, Victor. Actually, I just wanted to go back to that, that to that memo, Don. I'm sort of looking at it here, and the way David Rudiak and was he one of the the, the major forces that sort of uh, unraveled that uh, that kind of messy type that was uh, 
that was presented to him. Was he the major figure in that? Oh, yes, of course he was. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll credit to David. Um, we, uh, Stanton Friedman originally managed to get a scan, a drum scan, mm-hmm. from the negative. And the library was always very leery, just the very process of doing a drum scan, because you have to bend the negative. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was only the um, the legibility was only uh, a certain percentage from the, uh, of the original negative. And when we had it done a year later, we increased as far as the intensity to the point that we were very close to actually having the negative. The last time we did it, they, they told us for all intents and purposes, we had the negative. Mm. And then that's where, and, and David's specifically, Dr. Rudiak's specific technique is just to blow it up on the wall in front of him. And for those, for example, and we've had colleagues who have suggested, well, you're chasing you know, faces in the clouds. Right. Well, that's nonsense. Because yeah. you're talking like snowflakes. Every mm. one is different. Well, here there's only 26 possibilities. And then you're only talking about specific words that then have to, to be consistent within the context of a sentence. And it has to also be part of military jargon as also, you know, can easily be demonstrated. So it, it condenses it down to the point that it's exactly as Rudy X says it is, such as the line victims of the wreck. And if not, then... Somebody has to come up with new English vocabulary, new words altogether. All right, I got to okay. jump in here. Uh, this may be, aside from the individual, you know, testimony, this may be the most single most important piece of evidence uh, as we discuss the 70th anniversary of the UFO Roswell crash uh, back in uh, 1947. Don Schmidt on the phone and Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. None of the materials that we picked up weighed anything. Looked like it was weightless. You couldn't feel that you had anything in your hands. I found one piece of metal, what looked like metal anyway. It was not flexible, but it was as thin as a fall of a pack of cigarettes. It was that thin. One of my boys told me, there's something unusual here. He said, uh, I tried to make a dip in this metal. He said, you can't bend it. You can't make a mark on it. He says, I took a sledgehammer and I whammed it. I put it on the ground and whammed it. The, sledge, the sledgehammer bounced off of it. He told me not to say anything. He says, I'll handle it from now on. And that's exactly what he did. When he came out, he said, he told uh, the press that was there, he said, uh, that was nothing but a weather balloon, a crashed weather balloon. It was definitely not a weather balloon. And uh, it was an aircraft. So what it could have been, I wouldn't know. I still don't know. All right, that is, of course, uh, the aforementioned Jesse Marcel, who was um, with intelligence at the 509th uh, Army, Air, Army uh, Airfield in Roswell back in July of 1947. And uh, he is describing some of the material that was picked up from the uh, UFO crash debris field. 
as you listen back to that uh, uh, that uh, that testimony from Jesse Marcel, um, did he did he since he made that statement up until he passed away, or even his his son Jesse Marcel Jr. Did they deviate from that at all? Did they add anything? Did they take away anything? No, not at all. And I never had the honor and the pleasure to actually meet Jesse Sr. We came into our own investigation three years after he had already passed away in 1986. And uh, I would have loved, I was one of the things that to this day, I still point my finger at, at Stan Friedman. And why didn't you take him out to the debris <laughs> field? Why didn't you ever take him out to essentially recreate the scene of the crime, so to speak? And, you know, actually walk through that area and, and, and recreate what transpired through that day when he was first led out there by the rancher, Mac Brazel, and uh, filled up uh, t- two vehicles before they drove back to the base of Roswell. Um, and there would have been a lot of questions that I, and one of the things that I would have loved to have asked Jesse is, did you see the bodies? Because we've had witnesses and even family members within the Marcel relation who have described to us that Jesse did acknowledge that he saw a couple of the bodies. Ah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So he acknowledged it in private, but he never stated that for the record. That's correct. And in fact, even uh, his grandson, Jess III, repeated what his grandfather had said in an El- uh, a KLB interview in Albuquerque, New Mexico just months before he died, that there was still much that he was not able to talk about. And so I think in many ways, in 1978, when he first went public, he was testing the waters. And I think he had a rude awakening when you consider that there wasn't a single American publication that even touched the story. Here's the lieutenant colonel who was the number one intelligence officer in the United States military back in 1947. And he's dying of emphysema at the time, so he essentially is providing a deathbed testimony that he handled actual wreckage from a crashed UFO and stated as a matter of fact that it was not made on this earth. And the sad part being that nobody touched the story except the National Enquirer. <laughs> so does it make you know is it any surprise that he did just also come out and say well i also saw the bodies maybe you'll believe that well you know it was like we had that that famous scene in our roswell movie with uh actor kyle mclaughlin actually portraying jesse marcel and they're at, at, a, at a reunion and he's taken aside by a deep throat, by a plainclothes intel officer who's played by actor Martin Sheen. And Sheen tells him it's all true, confesses everything, that you know the whole situation, you know, we are being visited, we are in contact, you know, we are, you know, cooperating with uh, the phenomenon as, as best we know. And then... We we uh, we incorporated into the script where Marcel would finally say, "Well, what?" or he would ask, "Well, what did I see out in that field back in 1947?" And then 
the Sheen character reels him back in and goes, Why, Jesse, that was just the weather balloon. <laughs> and he goes, No, it wasn't. I held it in my hands. And he says, You go ahead. You tell the world what you saw. You have no proof. And that's been the trump card that the government has had over the last 70 years. The fact that it's almost like the old uh, the scene in the vampire confrontation where the, the vampire character is saying, go ahead, tell the world I, I exist. You can't prove it. That's right. No one will believe That's it. Right. No uh, one will yeah. believe it. On that same point, Don, I think, I think it was in the uh, your book, The uh, Children of Roswell, that you mentioned that some of the witnesses, I'm not sure if it was the children or the actual witnesses, moved through the, the field. Uh, and, and grab some of the most exotic pieces of the craft yes. as if they were in some sort of unintended candy store, just picking yes. these things up as they went yes. along. Um, would you ever expect or you know, have you ever seen any evidence that some of these pieces may surface at some point? Oh, we've had so many false alarms through the years. I can't tell you how often we've jumped on a plane and uh, with the hope that somebody would provide us with that, you know, that ultimate holy grail. And we've to date, you know, conducted five archaeological digs at uh, the very debris field site. Uh, we've had uh, many a crash investigator tell us that there's no way that you can absolutely retrieve every last shard, every last, uh, you know, microscopic particle, you know, from uh, a crash. And uh, as a result, you know, we we continue. It, and, and, and considering that the area covered an area of almost a, a square mile, and the fact that witnesses, as you described, Victor, I mean, it was a candy store. They described how they were even hiding pieces in, 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 in canned jars of fruit down in their storm cellars, down in their basements, because they realized they had something very extraordinary. And it wasn't like they displayed it in a trophy case or up on a on a fireplace mantle, that type of thing. No, they hid these pieces away under floorboards in, you know, their homes and out in sheds and down in, in fruit cellars and that type of thing. Only later to have everything confiscated by the military as they made a, a house-to-house, ranch-to-ranch, you know, systematic uh, search of the premises in, in, in trying to retrieve every last piece of physical evidence. And, you know, uh, gentlemen, that's always been one of the, the greatest arguments against this being a top-secret project or uh, or anything that we were testing because it was the physical evidence that they made every effort to retrieve. It wasn't somebody had knowledge of this or that or somebody had documents or, you know, had photographs that could demonstrate otherwise. It was, no, anybody who had physical proof that this indeed was something beyond the pale, something that could not be explained away. And that is why, even years thereafter, they were still confiscating materials. They were still searching. We have tales, we have stories from the rancher, the ranch hand, still out at that original ranch describing as recent as the late 80s, catching Air Force personnel still out at that site looking around. Ah, interesting. And I can assure both of you, they're not looking for pieces of a weather balloon. Well, let, let me ask you about the, 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 you're right, the second, the second explanation. The first one 
was that it was actually a, a, a disc that was captured by the army. Yes. The second one, Project Mogul, the weather balloon. Uh, have they been? I mean, they they claim that uh, this was a balloon that had been launched on, I think it was June the fourth or June the fifth. Yes. Uh, and and uh, flight number four. Right. Yeah. Didn't they go back though and check the log, the the the, the entry, and found that uh, due to weather there wasn't one launched on such and such a date, but it was launched on another date, and that one was recovered. Yes, and in fact, the very launch, uh, the very log from that uh, scheduled launch flight number four, they had already filled the balloons with helium. So it was the array, which would have been the radar reflector kites, the hexagonal reflector kites, which is what they, their claim you know, confused Marcel and the personnel at Roswell because of the reflective foil, you know, this flimsy material that you could you know, tear, you know, you could crumble up right in your own hands. And totally contrary to the descriptions of the witnesses, all describing this, near, this nearly indestructible, paper-thin, practically weightless material. And, 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 and yet um, it, it doesn't matter that the very flight that they attribute to Roswell was a non-flight. Right. And as you describe, Richard, it was then retrieved. Uh, they have to coincide it with the July 9th interview with the rancher Mac Brazo, where under military guard he is taken to the Roswell Daily Record, the newspaper, and he essentially retracts his original story, that it was just a balloon, we gathered it up on June 14th, and uh, the military came and retrieved it, and, um, you know, end of story. So, so a rancher is able to identify it as a balloon, but the head of intelligence at the 509 can't identify it as Precise, a balloon. Precisely. And the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, who, now, 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 now let's look at this scenario. Let's, let's just look a step back and, and watch this ourselves for a moment. The rancher comes into town, and he doesn't go to the military. The first thing he does, he goes to the sheriff's office, the Chavez County Sheriff, Sheriff George Wilcox. Wilcox is impressed enough with the material that he dispatches two of his deputies to go check it out. It's a holiday. It's a Fourth of July weekend. They could have humored him. They could have said, "Mr. Brads will come back tomorrow on Monday, you know, and maybe we'll we'll look into this." No, he sends out two of his deputies, and it's also important enough that they contact Marcel, who is on duty. He's having lunch at the PX when the call comes in. Marcel drives out to the sheriff's office. He examines some of the wreckage, sees that he cannot identify it, and then he takes some of it back and informs the base commander, Colonel Blanchard, who then, upon witnessing the wreckage himself, he doesn't just send out a couple of GIs, a couple of enlisted men, again, humor the ranch or check it out. No, he sends out Marcel, his head of intelligence, and his head of counterintelligence, Captain Sheridan Cavett, in the event it's something foreign, because that's what Cavett specializes in. So everything that has transpired up to that point demonstrates that no one 
could recognize or identify this wreckage. Except the except the rancher. Let, let me uh, jump in. The rancher who just happened. Hey, I just tried to tell them it was a balloon, but nobody would believe me. All right, no. Donald Schmidt is uh, with us. The the latest is cover up at Roswell, exposing the seventy year conspiracy to suppress the truth. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand Communications. Back with more of our look back at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. They took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to, to they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep a mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed or uh, told the, the, the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, what it was, and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, bo- we both knew differently. We left uh, Roswell perhaps around 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. As you can see, it's flat. It is very difficult, in fact, to... Uh, with just verbal directions that we know would have found it. We had to follow the rancher out there. The following morning, we went out to the site where the crash was. And uh, what I saw, I couldn't believe there was so much of it. It was scattered over such a vast area. So we proceeded to pick up as much of the debris as we could, loaded in the wagon. We filled that up. It took us a good part of the day to do that because uh, there's such small fragments. And we had to do a lot of picking. We found a piece of metal uh, about a foot, a foot and a half to two feet wide and about, about two or three feet long. Felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it. You couldn't bend it. Even with a sledgehammer would bounce off of it. So I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was, being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about every, all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This is nothing like that. It could not be. It, it could not have been. There we have uh, the late uh, Jesse Marcel, Chief Intelligence Officer with the 509th Army Airfield at Roswell. And uh, welcome back to our, our look back at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt uh, is with us on the line, roswellinvestigator.com, the website. And uh, the latest book is Cover Up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland Communications. And uh, I, I want to pick up on the, the, the Max Brazel mm-hmm. conversation we had earlier because, Victor, I knew you had uh, you pointed out something that I wasn't aware of uh, about Max's son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I, I I'm forgetting exactly where I saw it. I think it was in the in the uh, the children uh, of Roswell about Vernon uh, mm-hmm. Roswell, his mysterious disappearance in 1960. Yes. What was that all about? Uh, Vernon was seven, eight years old at the time of the incident, and the um, original young boy who was with Mac, who was assisting him on the ranch at that time, was one of Floyd and Loretta Proctor's sons, Timothy, they called him D, his middle initial, right. D, yes. Proctor. And he was all of seven years old, and one of the things that the ranchers always emphasized to us, that is, as quickly as a child could walk, they were put on a horse. 
so they uh, they contributed they helped with the the chores uh, on the ranches and so it's summer vacation the kids are out of school and uh so uh, d proctor happened to be with mac when he actually discovers the debris field the early morning of july uh, 3rd of 1947 and uh, when mac a few days later and due to what we believe because of the severe lightning storm, and they would typically watch its high desert, the lightning, and we witnessed this ourselves, the lightning strikes the ground because of being high desert. And so they typically would start watching for circling hawks and birds, demonstrating that there was a livestock down, cattle or uh, a cow or a sheep, that type of thing. And, and this was what alerted them to this site about two and a half miles from the debris field atop this bluff and we we've heard from enough sources that there were at least a number of boys uh sydney jack wright uh two of the eddington brothers both deceased uh uh d proctor and then max son vernon now after the incident and as vernon you know became an adult he went into the u.s navy and he returned home in 1960. And he took on a job. He rented out a, a home at that time. Had a girlfriend. And one particular morning, he didn't show up for work. And didn't pick up his, his final paycheck. Even his girlfriend had no idea, had not heard a word. But most uh, you know, alarming of all was the fact that his very family, his mom and dad, never heard from him again there was not a word as to his being somewhere else that he had uh, not fallen to foul play that uh, he was whisked away or he finally he, he packed up and left on his own whatever the case may be his brothers his sister but his mom and dad none of them ever heard from vernon again that's astounding listen i've got to jump in here again this was a short segment we'll take a yeah. time out come back and uh, we'll continue to look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Premier Roswell investigator Don R. Schmidt is with us. His latest is cover-up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. Stay right there. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. My name is Carlene Green. And I live here in Roswell. Uh, my father was in the Air Force, and he was stationed here at Roswell at the time in 47. Uh, he was assigned as part of the cleanup crew out at the site. He had the highest security clearance that the Air Force gives, but uh, he was never able, nor did he ever attempt to discuss the incident. He passed away in 1988. He had uh, his last tour of duty was in Vietnam, where he acquired Agent Orange. Ended up with a, uh, cancer of the spine. He did not want to die at home. He wanted to die in a military hospital. And as he was laying on the gurney waiting 
to be loaded into the ambulance. He told me, he said, baby, he said, the story is true. He said, don't let anybody try to tell you any different. He said, the incident happened. There was a spacecraft. He said, there were graves out there. And I kissed him, and that's the last I got to talk to my dad. But he was very committed, uh, committed gentleman. He, his love was for the service and his family. And he did his best to take care of both. What he told me, I believe with all my heart, uh, there is no doubt in my mind. There you have uh, Carlene Green. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. She's uh, the daughter of a first-hand witness to the uh, crash of a UFO at Roswell or near Roswell, New Mexico, back in July of 1947. Don R. Schmidt stays with us, the author of Cover Up at Roswell, Victor Vigiani in studio uh, from Zeland Communications, Zeland News Network. Don, your comments on, on Carlene Smith's testimony. That's pretty moving, poignant Carlene stuff. Green. Yep. Carlene's father was Sergeant Homer, he was a Master Sergeant, Homer Rowlett. He was with the 603rd unit at the base, and they were the principal squadron which uh, were involved in the recovery operation. We always thought the, uh, the, the, the 1293rd, which was the MP unit, would have been the obvious choice for securing the site, uh, managing all you know, elements of uh, policing the recovery operation. And they were, but they were on the peripheral. They were on the outskirts. They were, they handled as far as cordoning off the site and the checkpoints and that type of thing. Whereas the 603rd that Carlene Green's father was a member of, they were hands-on. They were those who were involved with the actual recovery of the wreckage, but more specifically, the bodies. And uh, as, as Carlene describes how uh, on her father's deathbed before he was uh, taken into that operating room, before he had uh, open-heart surgery, that uh, he confided to her about uh, that uh, not only was he part of the recovery operation, but he had seen the bodies and that one of them was alive, which is, again, consistent with... Um, both the military and the civilian testimony that we've acquired. And then what was great is that her very brother, Larry, also corroborated the same information. That we'll we'll hear from Larry uh, yes. a little bit later in the program. Victor? Yeah, I wanted to address the issue of Captain Oliver W. Pappy Henderson. I remember reading some of the material about him. Uh, I think he was one of the ones that assisted, or he was the chief pilot or the head pilot of the, the C-54, and he witnessed, purportedly, the loading of the debris, mm -hmm. and I think I recall reading in uh, the day after Roswell, I believe it was, I'm not quite sure about that, but the reference to the fact that there were crates being yep. loaded into the belly of the C-54, he witnessed this whole thing. How does he fit into all this? Well, he was a member of the Green Hornets, so uh, he was one of the, uh, the more highly respected pilots within the military at that time. And um, it was in the late 80s that uh, he and his wife, Saffo, happened to be in a checkout lane. And there was one of the tabloids that had, uh, you know, it could very well have had a, a story on, Ma on Major Marcel, you know, what had been claimed as far as, as far as the crash at Roswell. 
And he remarked to her, well, it looks like it's all coming out, so I might as well tell you. So he finally confided to her. And we did a, um, a dramatization of, of Pappy at the hangar and uh, the, the wreckage that was crated up and then loaded into a C-54 aircraft and then a, a, a number of the bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and Pappy, O.W. Oliver uh, W. Henderson, would talk about the bodies reminded him of Casper the Ghost. Not only that they were very pale, they were very ashen in color, but also the shapes of the head, which when you think about it, uh, there's no nose, no uh, slit for a mouth, no ear appendages or anything of that sort, no earlobes. And the other thing, his good friend, Dr. John Cromshorter, described to us that what what especially bothered uh, Henderson was that as a young boy he had attended, he had gone to his uncle's funeral, and that the pale, the ashen gray color of his uncle inside the casket also reminded him of the bodies. And so he was, he was, uh, he was a little spooked by the entire ordeal, let alone by the fact that he realized that they were not human. But it also was a throwback to even his childhood experiences. Yeah, the the, the affidavit that I'm familiar with that didn't his, did his wife not um, put forward some sort of affidavit uh, clearly outlining exactly what Pappy went through? Yes, there, there were a couple of affidavits too, weren't there? Yes, and there was also Mary uh, Good. I hope I have that name correct. That was his daughter. Mm-hmm and that she also described in her affidavit that um, there was an an occasion, even many years before, that he had finally confided to her mother, Sappho. Mm -hmm. And they were out stargazing one night, and and the topic just came up, to, to, to which his daughter asked, you know, you know, are we alone? Are we? And to which uh, her father commented, "Well, you know, it's true. You know, they're out there, yeah. and you know we're being visited." Yeah. I think the uh, her name is uh, Mary Grood, G R O D E. Grood, yeah, G R O D E, right? Yes. Um, yeah. The the other the other point I wanted to raise. Uh, I mean, this is all sort of historical, uh, obviously. But there is something that occurred in 1995. I think you, you quoted or cited this in, in, um, in the Children of Roswell, uh, that a United States um, officer or at least a department within the United States Air Force uh, attempted to change the mind of the son of one of the Roswell intelligence officers yes. as late as 1995. I mean, yes. is the government still working on this or what? <laughs> What's interesting is that in 1997, when they came out with their fourth official explanation, and that being the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummies to address all the uh, the body witnesses that we had accumulated up to that point. Um, Captain James McAndrew, who was the actual author of the Roswell case closed on the crash dummies, but before that he also was the chief researcher on the Project Mogul report. And just Junior described to us that for the better part of a year, Captain McAndrew was calling him up and, you know, just, you know, 
asking him to please reconsider that those I-beam structures that you describe having witnessed in the kitchen of your home that late, or I should say early morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, when his father on his way back to the base from the debris field with his car, his uh, 42 Buick convertible, loaded you know, to its gills with wreckage, and he wakes his wife, Viad, and Jess Jr., and takes them to the kitchen, and there he has the floor just covered with this strange wreckage, and Jess picks up uh, an I-beam structure, and, you know, he, he, he points out, what are these symbols, what are these structures, you know, that uh, you hold up to the light, they're pinkish in one direction, and then they're purplish in another direction, depending on how the light is cast on on this material. And so here it is, 50 years later, and Captain, or I should say Major McAndrew at that point, is arguing with Jess Jr., trying to convince him that, well, what you actually witnessed was nothing more than masking tape, with flowers painted on them, on these sections, and it shrank from the desert heat into what looked like an I-beam. And at one point, Colonel Marcel reminds him that he outranks him because McAndrew is screaming at him, according to Major or Colonel Marcel, what's it going to take for you to finally, you know, Believe that all you handled, you know, were strips of masking tape. And Colonel Marcel never backed down, even to the slightest. And to what we feel is a very profound acknowledgement on the part of, you know, Major McAndrew when he finally retorted, he finally, you know, you know, essentially gave in and stated, well, then Colonel. I guess we'll never we'll never know what you actually handled back in 1947. Let so me... here's the very author okay. of the Project Mogul report and Roswell case closed on the anthropomorphic crash dummy report, and he confides. He finally capitulates. He finally cries out and says, "Colonel." then I guess we never will know what you actually handled back in 47. We're going to get. End of story as far as we're concerned. <laughs> we're heading into a break in about two minutes, but just final question before the break, and that is getting back to these anthropomorphic crash dummies that were supposedly dropped from high-altitude balloons. Project High Dive, yes, and Excelsior, two different projects. Okay, so 1954 is when those... those That's right, that, 52 so it, actually and 54 would, yeah. Okay, so is, has that been 100% confirmed that they didn't start those crash test dummy tests until 1952? Absolutely. In fact, we even spoke to the very sun of the creator, the designer, of the very crash dummies. And he, when that explanation came out, he himself, according to the Sun, was quite livid because it was though he was responsible and he never was, uh, he never was uh, honest enough to step forward and say, yes, those are my crash dummies that they're describing, and uh, nobody should believe anything, you know, anything further they describe. And the point being that the very designer, inventor of those crash dummies, he confided to his son that the interesting thing about Project High Dive is every time those, first of all, those dummies were six feet tall, and they wore 
a full jumpsuit, and they were dropped by a parachute. So we don't have any witnesses describing jumpsuits. We have no witnesses describing parachutes, and we certainly don't have any witnesses describing six-foot-tall wooden crash dummies. All right, I've got to jump in here, and uh, uh, speaking of uh, Operation High Jump, (laughs) High Dive, we'll continue this conversation on the other side. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, our look back at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with us. Likewise, Don Schmidt, the author of Cover Up at Roswell, exposing the 70-year conspiracy to suppress the truth about the Roswell UFO incident. Back with more. Stay with us. (laughs) 